welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host today. Also joined by James Fox. James, it's been a little bit. Really glad to be able to talk to you again. Uh, thanks for jumping on, as always. Thanks, Mike. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Today, our guest, executive editor for Baseball America, Mr. J.J. Cooper. You can find him on Twitter at JJCoop36. Does a lot of really interesting stuff related to the draft and, of course, his, uh, his work speaks for himself over at Baseball America. We are so pleased to have J.J. on. We wanted to kick things off with the news that surrounds Major League and Minor League Baseball as it stands on April 29th. A lot of it is in question in relation to the season because of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. What do you know about the latest uh, talks between Major League Baseball and minor league baseball regarding the new agreement, considering where we all stand today. You know, obviously we had the, that we had the players and MLB have agreed to a, a deal that basically uh, cut the draft from 40 rounds to as few as five, as many as 10, which, which is amazing. Cause that's one of the most uh, dramatic changes to the MLB draft we've ever seen. I mean, we did have a time where, Used to be you could draft you could draft as long as you wanted to draft. And uh, one year as the Yankees did, they went 100 rounds. So, you know, then we went to 50, then we went to 40. But to go from 40 to 5 is massive, obviously. Um, and then we now have the reality of it is, is that here we sit as we get ready for May. And I can't tell you in any confidence that we're going to have a, a 2020 minor league season because... The reality of it is, is that there are not that it can't, those hurdles can't be overcome, but there are so many hurdles that have to be overcome. At the MLB level, when we're talking about playing and you can have fanless games and you can make that work, you can't make that work at the minor league level. You have to have fans or there's no revenue. If there's no revenue, minor league teams don't want to have the players there, nothing against them, but minor league teams are responsible for paying for travel, for hotel, things like that. They don't want to have the expense without potential of revenue. So you have hurdles there. You have hurdles about what happens if, you know, what happens if these three states in this league are okay with having, you know, sporting events going on and limited with limited fans, but these three other states that are in the league have teams in the league don't. Well, then you've got problems. You've got travel problems. You've got will MLB teams be comfortable sitting their players out. It's very different to say that we're going to have MLB players staying in one hotel and traveling on a charter jet. You know, and that would be the way they're going to play major league games. That's very different from saying that we're going to have our players in Kannapolis today, and then we're going to bus up to Lakewood, New Jersey tomorrow. And then after that series, we're going to bus over to Delmarva, and then we're going to come back. These are all very different things, which is just the preamble for what happens this offseason, which is the professional baseball agreement between major league baseball and minor league baseball expires. And there's obviously a lot of contentious uh, negotiations that have gone on with that over the past uh, six to nine months. And so far we have no resolution on that yet. Yeah. So, I mean, your recent article, you kind of touched on a little bit, just, you know, how they were like maybe going to try to come to a new agreement. So I get, is there like a latest on those talks or not really since your article has been released, I think last week. The, the latest is, is okay, there have been positive signs for an agreement of some sort. And I, I say that part of that is reading of the tea leaves. We had a joint press release after uh, the April 27th, uh, 22nd, I should say, uh, meeting negotiations. And I say meeting, you know, 
phone call, teleconference, whatever you want to call it. We're, we're all in the uh, stay-at-home world right now. But there was a joint press release afterwards that said that the, the meeting was productive and that they're working towards an agreement. They're, you know, they continue to make efforts to make an agreement. And what was significant about that is that Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball put out a, a release together because if we rewind the clock a few months, a calendar, I should say, that was a bad analogy, but if you rewind the calendar a few months, um, you had MLB and MILB putting out very dueling, uh, you know, press releases where you could basically see the, you, the, the, the pages, you know, if you printed it out, it'd probably be literally hot a little bit because, I mean, they were clearly absolutely battling in the court of public opinion. This is a, a cooler temperature. This is, we see that there is a possibility of, of making progress. My reporting that I've done afterwards basically seems to echo that, that there does seem to be uh, strides towards an agreement and everything that reported before that meeting and everything afterwards still seems to match up with that. We're looking at a hundred, there's not an agreement yet. I want to emphasize that. But if there is an agreement right now, it seems like that that agreement would have 120 affiliated minor league teams for 2021 and beyond, which is 40 teams less than we have right now. That would be cutting one fourth of the current affiliated ticket buying minors. I put ticket buying in there now because I've gotten questions from people saying, what does this mean for the Gulf Coast League or the Arizona League or the Dominican Summer League? Those are separate. But this would lop off rookie ball and short season above the complexes. And basically each major league team would have a low A, a high A, a double A, and a triple A. And again, no agreement's been reached yet, but everything momentum-wise seems to be headed in that direction of it being the system with four full season clubs for each team. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what I was going to follow up with. In your article, you mentioned, you know, the 42 teams being extracted, which, look, is something that obviously they've they've been talking about, and we're not going to let a crisis go to waste here, obviously, with Major League Baseball. But you did mention that, like, the 42 teams that would become extracted, um, like, would still possibly have some baseball ties somehow. Absolutely. So, like, what does that mean? Would they just, like, maybe become indie ball clubs, some of those places, theoretically? So... One other thing that I think was very important that happened around that April 22nd meeting is MLB had a release the day before it, or maybe it was the day of uh, my time frame is every day feels like the same right now, but um, they had a release before it. And they emphasized in that again, that their intent in this negotiation is to ensure that each city in affiliated baseball that has base affiliated baseball right now, would continue to have baseball in this going forward. And that's something that MLB has been consistent about going back to the first day that they rolled out their plan to minor league baseball, the 120 plan last year. But that's the first time that they publicly said so post coronavirus shutdown, because, you know, Commissioner Manfred said it in a press conference in early March, but there was always that possibility that everything was going to change and they were going to say, you know, with the reduced revenues of coronavirus, we can't promise that anymore. Well, now they've come out and said it again. And there's a lot of ways that that could be. There could be a lot of different ways. And I think it will, the best way I can put it is, is there's going to be different answers for different cities. We've got the Appalachian League around us, which is, you know, rookie ball that is really designed for high school players, you know, players coming over from, you know, uh, Latin America, 
teenagers in most cases. You know, a few college players in their draft year go there too, but it's designed for really, you know, it's pretty low-level rookie ball. Well, it's played, it's kind of in between complex ball and full season ball from the standpoint of there's a lot of those cities, they're smaller cities, there's a lot of the travel in that league where you go to a game, you play, you may even take BP at your own park, bus over to the game, and then bus back after the game. So it's not the same thing as, you know, being in the Midwest League and, you know, or the South Atlantic League, and you're on the road a lot and things like that. But those cities just aren't big enough to where if you said, I, next year, you're going to have indie ball. Well, right now in the Appalachian League, those teams don't pay the salaries of the players. They don't pay the salaries of the coaches. They don't pay for the travel in the league. And, you know, there's some other expenses that MLB teams pick up. So if you told them next year, you're going to be in professional indie ball. And by the way, let's say that payroll with workers comp and all is going to run you 200,000. And then we got to throw coaches on top of that. So you're going to have to find another 350, $400,000 in revenue to make this work. Their answer to that would be, we can't make that work. It's not realistic. It's crazy. But they would then, but at the same time, if you said that MLB is going to set up a Summerwood Bat League for that area and they're going to help funnel players, you know, and so you're going to have some good college players come there. College players are amateur. You can't pay them. Well, all of a sudden your expenses have gone way down. They're not much different than they are for Appy League right now. That may be a system that would be sustainable and viable long-term for the Appy League. Well, if we're talking about a Midwest League club or a South Atlantic League club or a higher level club that's on the outs in this situation, they very well might be able to afford and be able to make the economics of an indie ball team work. You know, and so it may be indie ball in some places. It may be MLB at one point was talking about a dream league for undrafted players. It may be some form of that in some places. It may be Summerwood Bat in some other places. But MLB is pretty adamant. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but they are pretty adamant publicly of stating that, no, they're not taking baseball away from all these cities. They're just saying you're not going to have affiliated baseball. And I don't want to in any way sound like, you know, I try to not take sides in any of this argument. I'm trying to report on it. But I do want to point out something that I have seen in my own you know, personal experience before I came to Baseball America a long time ago, I used to cover the Macon Braves, the low class A South Atlantic League Macon Braves, back when the South Atlantic League had four teams in Georgia. They had make five. They had Macon, Augusta, Savannah, Columbus, and Albany. And none of those, Augusta now plays in North Augusta across the across the river in South Carolina, but none of those cities still exist. You know, have still have they the cities exist, I should say, but none of those teams still exist as they were then. But in several of those cities. Now in Columbus and Albany, that means baseball's gone. They didn't, you know, they have not had baseball for most of those years. But in Savannah, they have a Coastal Plain Summerwood Bat League team and they draw much better for that Wood Bat League team. They have a great operator there, Savannah Bananas, and they draw really well. And they have baseball. And I would say that they are minting more baseball fans there with unaffiliated summer college league ball than they were when they had affiliated ball. Macon has a good operator now with the Macon Bacon and they're drawing as well, I would say, as they were doing when they had the Macon Braves and they had Hall of Famers like Chipper Jones coming through. So I do think it's a little alarmist when people say they're taking baseball away from these cities. What is, I would say, more accurate to say 
is they're taking affiliate baseball maybe going away from these cities. So much good stuff there. And I want to stay on the topic and I want to make sure that I don't go in a million different directions with my follow-up here because I want to, I want to take you back. Okay. So you said a few things that caught my attention. One uh, was the matter of what you just said and that you're not taking away baseball, you're taking away affiliated baseball. To me, that sounds like in these places, like in the pioneer league, Appalachian leagues, um, they're giving the opportunity to these facilities to survive on their own. And it's not, you're not, you're not closing down shop. You're just providing, well, not providing, you're forcing these organizations to take a different Avenue. And what I'm trying to figure out is from the business side of it. Um, and if you could provide your perspective here mm-hmm. on major league baseball is again, I don't want to, I don't, we're going to talk about the draft here soon, mm-hmm. but we know that w- with this, dramatically reduced draft this year could lead to potential sh- a shortened draft consistently in the future. So with that in mind, and this is of course, assuming that mm-hmm. with the reduction of minor league franchises in the, in the rookie affiliates from, from a baseball standpoint and a, and a business standpoint, does it, it, it makes sense to me at least with a shorter draft, lesser players are coming in. You're not really having to fund because minor league affiliates, like you said, take care of themselves with generated revenue across the season. So, you know, Major League Baseball provide a financial staple, but essentially these teams are, are trying to survive on their own. So from a business standpoint, of Major League Baseball's perspective, it makes sense for them in, in sort of, a, you know, a twisted way as a fan to see that, well, okay, eliminating the minor league a rookie affiliate scene sort of makes sense. Is, is that where baseball is going now? They're prepping for what's ahead because of the ramifications of all the changes coming this year? Uh, it's a chicken and egg question. I mean, MLB came out with the 120 plan last year. You know, so before any of this happened, before they had the draft cut to five rounds, they had come out with this plan. Now, what they've also done on the other end, that I would say, is you can essentially say that in some ways they've baked the cake before, you know, they had that. They have all the ingredients. They put it all together. The minute they got the agreement with the MLBPA to cut the draft to as few as five rounds this year, they, you can argue that they've kind of created a fait accompli that the reduction of the minor leagues is going to naturally have to happen afterwards. Now, I don't want to say has to happen. I don't want to stretch it too far because you could always sa- sign an unlimited number of $20,000 undrafted players. Right, so right. you could fill out three, you know, three, four, five additional rosters of, of players. If you said we need to provide players for the Appalachian league next year, they could get to that number. It's not that they can't, but when you cut the draft, like they did in a case of the Yankees, they could end up signing 30 some less they, they could go, I'll look it up while we're talking, but the Yankees could sign three players in this year's draft because they lost a couple of draft picks. If it's a five-round draft, I still think there's a ten chance that we're going to see 10, but if it's a five-round draft, the Yankees aren't going to have a draft class. They're going to have like, uh, you know, you could fit their draft class in a uh, compact car. Well, last year, the Yankees signed tw- more than 30 players. That's a full team less of draftees that they're going to sign. So that kind of creates the environment for this already. 
But when MLB first rolled this out, whatever, whether you agree with it or not, their argument was they think that getting rid of levels of the minors is a more efficient minor league system. And by that, one of the things they mean with that is, is when you say, well, what do you mean by a more efficient system? They're going to have less players. They're going to have less players who statistically across the board, the majority of whom are never going to be major leaguers. And so then the argument that I've had people, not with MLB themselves, but I've had front office officials for teams tell me, it's like, you know what? If we go from 250 players to 150 players and we keep the same amount of, of coaching staff and the same amount of analytics staff and the same amount of you know trainers and all that, we're going to be able to provide more focused development attention on the players who we look at as having MLB futures than we did in the past. As, as one person put it to me, if you're uh, 85 to 87 mile an hour lefty, 28 year old on our double A team, because we needed an extra arm on that team. And you go to the pitching coach and say, Hey, I really want to work on my changeup. He's going to work with you. But if we have a smaller group, he's going to spend more time working with the 22 year old who we think has a big league future because he's not going to deny a player on the team coaching, you know, coaching uh, time. That's the argument from the MLB side is, is that this is a more rational system. And, but I will say also the same people will tell you, absolutely. Does this mean that a few players or you could argue even more than a few will slip through the cracks and you will have guys who would have been major leaguers who never play major league baseball? Absolutely. I don't think there's any question of that. I'll just give a one hypothetical example. I'm getting really long winded. I apologize, but let's say you have a college senior who is graduating and, you know, has a reasonably bright future in some sort of career. Well, if that player comes off coming off of a good senior year at a four-year college, if that player's drafted the 20th round, even if he's only offered, say, $25,000, $50,000 as a bonus, that may be enough for that player to say, you know what, I'll give it a shot for a year. Let's say he has a good year, he keeps climbing the ladder. We see stories like that every year of players like that who make it to the majors. Some of them stick for a long time. Some of them may be an up and down reliever, but still that was a major leaguer that provided some value to a major league team. That same player in, let's even call this year a 10 year, a 10 round draft, but it's a 10 round draft. Never hears his name called. And basically that lack of validation of having someone drafting him maybe is enough for him to say, you know what? I'm not going to sign as a $20,000 non-drafted free agent. I'm going to go start my career. That's a very logical thought process. Or to really take it a step further, that player says, I didn't get drafted. Rather than going to indie ball or a new hypothetical non-drafted player league to play for low money to see if I can get signed to affiliated ball, I'm just going to go start my career. That player never gives it a shot. And some of those players, not many, but some of those players are going to make the majors in a different system. That makes so much sense to me, and I'm glad you put it that way um, because I'm not sure I got my question across well, but that was exactly what I was looking for. And it makes so much sense considering, yeah, rationally, you know, and you said it, the majority of the time players in short season rookie affiliates 
aren't going to provide major league value in the end. However, there's two sides to every coin. Players may end up quitting earlier in their professional or even collegiate career, like you said, in their baseball career, uh, and move forward with their lives outside of baseball because of the ramifications here. So that makes a ton of sense in the way you explained it. So let me uh, let me ask you, related to the White Sox here, one of the teams that looks to be on the chopping block um, is the Great Falls Voyagers. And they've been with the White Sox. They've been an, uh, an advanced rookie affiliate for, for nearly 20 years now. So if we assume that this agreement is going to come into place, do you think it's possible the White Sox could employ two Arizona League teams instead? And what would you believe would happen with, with Great Falls uh, ultimately? So, again, I – I want to, I apologize for the hedging, but we have no agreement yet. So with there being no agreement, you know, I'm, I'm going into the world of the hypothetical a little bit. When I first heard about this, when I first reported on this last year, as part of that plan, one of the other aspects of it was that, that there was a component where teams were, were limited to one complex league team as well, which right now many teams have multiple complex league teams. Many teams have multiple complex league teams and multiple Dominican summer league teams. Now I do not know that's almost kind of secondary to this negotiation. That is something that MLB controls. Again, those are not teams. There's 160 teams. Well, okay. It's really, if I get really uh, annoyingly precise on it, there's 150 teams in the professional baseball agreement then there's the 10 Appalachian League teams, which are, they're part of the agreement in some ways, but at the same time, those are teams where you can't own a franchise. MLB teams own the club. They license, they lease the, you know, that, that, that someone runs the team for them. And so those are separate and can be shut down in a different way. But you get to the complexes, that's completely MLB controlled. So there's no way of knowing in this agreement whether that means that the White Sox or anyone else could add a second complex team or, and to be honest, I would call this kind of almost like the anti-Yankees provision, or if they're going to be limited, there are teams out there who, the way I would describe it is, is that the Yankees have always been quite clear about that they see a lot of value in having a large number of minor league teams, as they put it. And I think Brian Cashman said it multiple times publicly, the more lottery tickets, the better. You know, if you the cost of a low level rookie ball team is not very much as far as how much it costs to staff the team, as far as signing players as how much it costs to pay for the players. Cause they don't get make very much at all. And they only get paid by the way, from the time the games start till the season ends. So you don't pay those players if they're an extended, they don't get paid right now. They get per diem, but they don't get paid. So the costs are very low. So the Yankees have always been a team that likes having, they have, you know, multiple Dominican clubs. They have multiple GCL clubs. They have an Appy league team. They have a New York Penn league team. So they have nine total teams. There is part of this where there are teams, MLB teams who say, if you allow the rules to let teams have these many teams, we will feel the necessity of fielding this many teams or close to it ourselves, because we don't want to give these teams willing to spend an advantage but they will also say, but save us from ourselves. They put a rule in so that they can't spend it because if they don't spend it, then I don't have to spend it. 
And so I'm sorry again, it's long-winded answer, but I don't know on the complexes because there's some part of it which is like there are teams who very much make the argument. They make the argument when it comes to rookie and short season ball. I think it's a pretty compelling argument. Okay, don't guarantee that rookie ball in any form continues, but just don't prevent us from being able to do it. So this is how it used to be in minor league baseball. If you go back before the 1990 PBA, if you were below double A, you were not guaranteed of having an affiliate and teams had affiliates some years, the next year they didn't. So they became an independent team playing in an affiliated league. You had teams actually drafting players at the time. The Miami miracle would draft players and they actually drafted a couple of big leaguers. They did pretty well in the draft, but so back then it was kind of much more of a free market. And so with that, if that continued, you would have teams being able to say, you know what? We think there's value in having a rookie ball team. So we're going to still have it. From everything I'm hearing, it seems like there's been much more of the cost containment side, which is no, we're not going to allow that. So to answer the complex question, the answer is we don't know, but I would say there's a chance that no, you're only going to be allowed one. When it comes to Great Falls, when it comes to all of these teams, and again, I want to emphasize, we do not know for sure who any of the 40 slash 42 are. Nothing has been finalized. But when you look at what MLB is looking to do in this, what they have been publicly saying that they want to do, one of the things they said they want to do is cut travel. That's where the Pioneer League and, and leagues like that and, you know, and even the Northwest League to some extent, you know, there's, I think some Northwest League teams are going to survive, but that's where that becomes very difficult for them because one of the things that is very difficult is, is the Pioneer League has some of the most difficult travel of any minor league because the reality is, is when you're in Montana and when you're in, you know, th those states, nothing's close together. So it's a lot of long bus rides and all. And so it's going to be more difficult for those teams, I would say, to get themselves off of the list than say, you know, some of the double A teams that we heard on it that are in pretty good geographic situations, if that helps at all. Yeah, it definitely helps. And I, you know, I think from the White Sox like perspective and just like from what we do, you know, like if they cut out Great Falls and we're able to have two teams in the in uh, the AZL. I think, I mean, I think they could actually argue that that makes more sense for them anyway. Like having all those rookie ball kids in Arizona instead of sending them to Montana, even though, um, yeah. even though that's what they've been doing, you know, but obviously. I'll make a counter, can I make a counter argument though? Like sure. again, I don't, and again, I'm just, I'm relaying things I've heard. So, and I agree with you that there is some logic to that. The counter argument I have heard, and I think it's not a bad one is Okay. So let's take the player. Again, the other thing when I talked about that the college senior who's not going to sign in this, the other thing that's going to happen here and that everyone pretty much agrees is, is it's going to be a whole lot tougher not to take the, the first rounder high school kid. I'm not talking about that. Like if you're Bobby Witt, you know, Bobby Witt Jr. last year or CJ Abrams, those guys are still getting drafted no matter what the system is. But if you're talking about the projectable toolsy, but kind of less developed, the, the, the two or three sport player who has an interest in playing baseball. You try to sign that guy out of high school, let's say, okay. And let's just, or let's say, let's, let's say that is an example, or let's take an example of the 16 year old uh, signee of, out of the Dominican. Okay. And let's say that those guys in their first year in the States 
So we've now kind of gotten them to the even level. Because again, the DSL guy, you know, the Dominican guy probably plays a year in the DSL. But then he comes to the States. And those two guys both have a really good year in the AZL, right? So they have they tear it up for the AZL White Sox. Next spring rolls around. They have a solid spring training. And the two of them get sent out to low A. So let's say, you know, they're getting sent out to Kannapolis, right? And whether it's the the jump in level, whether it's adjusting to being out on their own, because again, there is a, especially if you're a player coming over from, you know, from Dominican Republic or, you know, Panama or Colombia or whatever, there's a pretty significant cultural jump when you go from complex ball where you're staying in effectively a dormitory, a hotel, and you're eating your meals there and it's kind of a very structured environment to going out to where you're kind of on your own to do a lot of these things in a country where you're learning the language. And let's say for, for whatever reason, both these guys really struggle in April and it stretches into May and they struggle in May. Okay. Under the current system, what you would do if you're the White Sox probably is you would send that guy back to extended, both of those guys. And then when extended ended, you know, out they go to Great Falls, right? Like, okay. And if you're the player, you can rationalize that as, okay, that level was a little too much for me, but you know what? I'm going to go to this new league that's still a step up from where I was last year. And by doing so, I can show that I'm ready, you know, to make it back to the South Atlantic League. Well, even if we allow that, let's say there's two, you know, AZL White Sox clubs. It's a very different thing if you say fail in the South Atlantic League and so they send you back to the same league that you tore up last year. No matter what they tell you as a player, you know that you're back where you were the year before. And let's say in the nightmare scenario, let's say you have a worse year there in your second year there. Well, that's going to be a much more a much more difficult development path than when you have that kind of in-between step. And I think that, to be honest, that's one of the most... Um, one of the most compelling arguments for why, you know, what would be lost if this system does come in is that, okay, I don't have, you know, like, again, there are ways in the long run you could try to fix that, you know, but, but that is, uh, you know, again, you guys cover this, you guys see it. Like there are guys who kind of, that's the development path that they're on and it can cause kind of some issues. Yeah. And you know, the Sox have some guys like that, like you've talked about. So like, you know, they took uh DJ Gladney last year, mm-hmm. Bryce Bush, you know, the year before that, Absolutely. some of those guys like probably don't sign now. I mean, those, those guys are probably going, oh, no. going to school you, you, for sure. You can't, you know, I mean, so. you, you look at it and you say, I would say that you look at it and say, do I want to see, we always, I mean, you hear the same terms, the two year rookie ball guy, right? Right. right. I don't know if you take those guys anymore because it's very different if you have three steps between signing and full season ball and to have one step. If you have one step, it very well may be like, you know what? We just can't take that guy. And again, a lot of those players will go to college and it'll work out hopefully okay for them. But it also is true that some of those players, again, if it's a two sport player, maybe they go they're They very likely may go to a different sport because baseball is not a full scholarship sport or in some cases, you know, and maybe professional baseball, MLB can argue this would work out well for them. They would, they get offered 250 K out of high school. They go to college. The tools don't develop. They struggle in college and that offer never comes again. So, you know, there are people who are definitely going to be losing out in this situation 
And there also probably will be some people who, who went out in this situation. Yes. I mean, so there's also like shifting gears here. Obviously there's like all these plans that are being floated about, you know, how they want to start major league baseball this year. And I'm not going to have you speculate as to which one you think makes the most sense, but just, you know, practically for what we do, you know, if, if major league baseball does happen later this year, um, you know, I do think like, I agree with you that like minor league baseball at affiliates, you know, is, is, is not happening, but is, do you think it's feasible that, you know, the minor league players play on backfields in Arizona and Florida or at spring training sites and just kind of handle it like you would handle a spring training? Or would they really like put minor league players on ice for this year, theoretically? I'd say either is possible. And, and I say that again, I'm sorry, I'm hedging again, but the way I would put it is, is that it's hard for me to imagine there's if you don't let minor league players do something this year, then you're absolutely going to harm you. Their development is going to be harmed because, you know, yes, some young players will get stronger, but I was talking to Adley Rushman a couple of weeks ago and he said, the biggest problem I'm having right now is, is yeah, I can do a lot of work. I can do a lot of swings, but you're not giving those live, you're not getting live at bats the same way. And you're not going to develop the same way if you're not getting live at bats. So at the minimum, I mean, let's just look at it practically. If major league baseball plays, there has to be some form of minor league baseball, whether it's at the backfields or whatever, because you have to have a group of ready players. You're not going to get through a whole season with every pitcher staying healthy. So, and every player, you know, position player staying healthy. So you have to have at the minimum, a team, you can call it your AAA club or you can call it a taxi squad or whatever you want, but they're going to absolutely have to have some form of minor leaguers because you have to have players who are ready to come up and join the, the big league club. Now, then I think it becomes fair. Okay, if you've gotten to that point, then why wouldn't you at least bring a next group of your best prospects so that they can play and you know get development? And again, it's kind of a slippery slope. And at that point you go, well, do we want to cut it off at 25 of our best prospects? Or do we want to get to 50 or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very practical to say if you can play major league baseball, maybe you do get to this point where you have something else going on for the minors. And I also agree, like there's a lot less hurdles to that than there is to the hurdles of playing minor league games in front of ticket buying fans. You know, that said, there's still hurdles with that because what happens if you then do have a coronavirus outbreak, you know, at, a, at one of these facilities? It, as we've seen, you know, potentially could spread pretty quick. And all of a sudden, I mean, everything we talk about is, is the possibility that there also is that you could have a step forward and then you have to take a step back. And especially at the minor league level, that probably gets a little bit more difficult. I want to focus now on the draft and and looking ahead to June 10th. There are reports suggesting that the draft will, in fact, take place on that date. Uh, And and it makes sense to us, and I'd love to get your take on the proposed date and and considering the fact that with all this is going on, baseball is staying true to the amateur draft, at least in, in its schedule. Now, when it comes to the number of rounds, we can speculate five or ten, how are you and your staff over at Baseball America preparing 
for this very unique draft. And within that question, I want to ask you, does this affect, like how, how does this affect high school players to an extent compared to previous drafts? Um, and is this, I should say, do you think major league teams are more focused on taking college players uh, who are, who are maybe more further in their development? Well, we, we could, we could literally spend an hour on that one question. It's a good question. Cause so, okay. Starting with how we're doing with it, you know, it's a draft, so we're going to cover it as, as deeply as we can. Um, to be honest, if it's five rounds, I hope it's 10, but if it's five, it gives us our first shot of, of having written up everyone who was drafted <laughs> when it's 40 rounds, we want to get as many guys as we can, but we know we're not going to have written up scouting reports on, you know, all 1,100 players who are taken because there's going to be, you know, in some cases, even there, I mean, the white Sox, for example, have taken like sons and daughters of, uh, you know, uh, of front office officials before. So we're not going to get all those, but if it's five rounds, Hey, maybe we can, you know, we, we went to 500 at the site, you know, right now. So we have ranked 500. We'll have reports up on 500 players. If they're only going to draft 150, we think that the vast, vast, vast majority will be among those 500 that we've ranked. Um, but when you talk about what, what it's going to do to the draft. So let's start with what it means for the high school players. Okay. Again, we don't know if it's going to be five or 10. Let's start with it's five rounds. If it's a five round draft, we're going to have the top high school and college players. The first round guys are, are pretty modestly affected in this. I mean, we have to acknowledge like one of the top high school pitchers in this class, probably my favorite top you know high school pitcher in this class is Mick Abel. Mick Abel didn't throw an actual pitch. He has thrown bullpens, but the, the coronavirus, you know, shutdown happened before he's from port he's in portland oregon they hadn't played a game yet so one thing it obviously has affected if you are a college player across the country unless you are injured you got to be seen this spring because every college played on the high school level if you if you're from southern california if you're from florida if you're from georgia even you know places like that yeah you played you didn't play a lot but you played but if you're, uh, you know, Mick Abel, if you're Nick Bitsko, if you're a colder weather, you know, upper Midwest, Northeast, Northwest player, you may have literally not played a game this summer. I mean, this this spring, which means that everything that you are are basically being evaluated on is almost all entirely what you did last summer and last fall. And so that's an evaluation difference right there. And Absolutely. I've talked to scouts about players who high school players who didn't have great summers or weren't real prominent last summer, but have taken big steps forward. There are players who absolutely would have been drafted if we had a season who won't be drafted now. And I think it's also fair, even if it, you know, even if it goes 10 rounds, it's also fair on the high school side that there are also players who they were on that, that, that cusp of being drafted, but you're probably going to shy away from them now because you just have less certainty. And you didn't get to see a lot of them this spring, you know, well, so that's going to happen on the high school side. I do think it does mean it's going to make it a little bit more college heavy, kind of like what you said. Um, But the other thing it's going to do, let's say it's five rounds and the bonus limit after the fifth round, you cannot in the past, any leftover money you had after signing your player drafted players could be used on undrafted. So a few years ago, TJ uh, Friedel basically, kind of a scouting oversight, which is kind of embarrassing, but 
he had a really good college year, but no one, a lot of teams seem to realize, not realize that he was a draft eligible sophomore. Well, he goes to USA baseball, has a really good summer. Everyone realizes he's available as an undrafted, you know, but you could sign him. And the Reds had basically 700 some thousand left over in their draft pool. So they went and signed him. this year. You couldn't do that this year. You're still limited 20 K. Well, I think one of the safe things we can say that's also going to happen with this is, is if it's a five round draft, don't expect to see fifth rounders signing for slot because let's say that you're a guy who's a fourth to sixth round talent, you know, kind of evaluated by teams as such. They may call you up, you know, before they pick in the fifth round and say, we know slots 250, 300 K or whatever at this slot, but we'll offer you 125 or 150. And you can say no, but if you say no, and you don't get drafted, the most you can sign if you want to go pro this year is 20000 So that's going to also, I mean, for a for a college junior, you probably have to at least think about that, even if you do have junior eligibility next year again. For the high school kid, the, re, the answer to that is no, I'm going to take my chances on going to college, which takes to one extra effect that's going to happen out of that, which is, so you have colleges, which every college player on this year's team if they opt to, can come back. If you're a redshirt sophomore this year, you're a redshirt sophomore next year. If you're a senior this year, you're a senior next year. So you can come back, which means the rosters are already, especially if it's a five-round draft, going to be overstuffed. Well, then take on top of that, that you're going to have high school kids who in a normal draft would have been drafted and signed, but now they're not going to. So that's a big so all of a sudden, next year's college rosters in a sport with 11.7 scholarship limits is going to be, you know, massively overstuffed. And I should note that seniors, you can go over your 11.7 next year only if the school allows it. But in a time where a whole lot of schools are in financial trouble, there's going to be a whole lot of schools that can't allow that next year. So the answer is, is next year, this past next year is going to be a mess because of all of this. It's going to be a whole lot of uh, expected effects and unexpected effects. Yeah, I totally agree with you as far as, you know, like I think college juniors, you know, that are, you know, that would typically be in that five to 10 range are the guys that lose out here more than high school guys. Cause they, I mean, they obviously have even less leverage, Like you can go back as a senior and get nothing next year, or you can basically take what you're being offered now. Um, which kind of stinks for those guys, but shifting further a little bit, just to the white Sox, they pick at number um, 11 overall, Obviously, they've they've been very heavily taking college players. Mike Shirley's taking over um, this year for Nick Hostetler, and he's indicated like a willingness to become more prep focused in general. Um, but obviously, you know, just like with the lack of scouting and the lead up here, some of that stuff might have changed. We've heard them link to guys like Jared Kelly and then the local kid Ed Howard. Who do you think makes sense for the White Sox at eleven overall, and and does a shift? to being more high school focused, like make more sense like in this environment now? To be honest, I don't think so. I think where I look at where the White Sox are right now, I think they're still in the area where I'm not saying, again, all of this is absolutely context dependent. Like if the White Sox sitting at 11 believe that Jared Kelly is vastly superior to any college player that's on the board at the time, I'm not in any way saying that they should go college, you know, just to force it. But where I look at where the White Sox are right now, I still kind of see that, I mean, they're kind of in that part of that window where 
close to the, you know, quickly moving college guys have some, to me, additional value to them because those are guys who are going to reach the majors potentially during this window where, okay, you, you mentioned Jared Kelly, you know, Jared Kelly or Ed Howard, you know, like it, 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 let's say you take Jared Kelly, especially though, high school right-hander. Well, if you take a high school right-hander in 2020, odds are, if it's a successful pick, that it's going to be 2026, 2027 before that player is really contributing to your big league club, which I know seems like a very long time. But I mean, just look back, just look at, there's something, some for some reason, seemingly magical about year six, seven, eight, but especially year seven for a high school pitcher where things start to click. Look at Lucas Giolito. Look, look how long it took him to kind of, and credit to him, like he took a big step forward last year, but look how long it took for him to kind of put it together. I, I can go back, you know, years ago to Homer Bailey. I can go, there are, there are the, the, the Jose Fernandez and the Mike Soroka, you know, exceptions to that, but it's a pretty straight, you know, if you just look on average, there's a lot of that, like where it takes six, seven, eight years for that player to fully establish themselves. Again, I'll get Javison Tyone's another example, high school player, you know, from the same class as Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, they're hitting free agency and he's kind of, you know, really kind of establishing himself as the pirate's ace at the same time. Um, where like, okay, just taking that range. Let's say if Garrett Crochet is on the board from the lefty from Tennessee. Now Crochet didn't pitch a whole lot before the shutdown, but you know, again, it wasn't something that was supposed to be a long-term problem. He did show that the stuff was there before that key to get one start in there, but show every bit of the stuff everyone expected to see. But draft Garrett Crochet at that spot. If Jared Kelly is going to take, you know, five, six, seven years, Garrett Crochet if it develops, if he develops right, you could be looking at 2022, 2023, 2024 at the outer end. And I think that that fits much more into the window of kind of where I expect the White Sox could be contending for, uh, you know, for AL Central titles. JJ, really awesome stuff. I mean, this was such uh, an insightful conversation. I'm really glad and, and we're, we're so thankful for your time. Um, you've been very generous speaking to us here on the Future Sox podcast. A couple more, and then we'll wrap this up. I'm curious your opinion. Just This is a general scouting question, just mm-hmm. for me. And for our listeners, too, maybe who are not so familiar with the process of scouting and evaluating mm-hmm. players, you've been doing this for a long time now. What exactly oh. are you <laughs> What exactly are you looking for in a player that suggests that, hey, this is a top 10 pick or a first-round talent? And also related to you know, today's era of advanced technology and launch angle, exit velocity, a lot of these things, what the scouting um, departments are looking for, how is it changed from traditional scouting uh, to where it is today? Okay. Um, I'll answer the second part first. Uh, really interesting question. Like to me, there's so much more information out there. So I've been at Baseball America since 02. And in 2002, we were still in the era where if you saw a college game on TV, if ESPN was broadcasting a game, a college game, and it had a good graph prospect in it, I mean, you stopped everything to see it. I mean, you were, because it was that rare. But the reality of it is, is that 
most of what you saw was whatever you could get to and see in person. And then whatever, in our case for Baseball America, whatever reporting you could do on the phone and talking to people who saw people in person. You know, now in 2020, every college and high school kid in the country, you know, a, a couple of clicks and you're watching video of them. And that's just simply something that didn't exist. I mean, in, 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 again, I go back to when I was covering baseball in the late nineties, you know, getting velocities on pitchers was significant. Um, you know, and now that's just kind of almost just common public information. And so, so I would say from that standpoint, that's changed and made a significant change because there's a lot more data out there. But the other thing that I think that you have to also throw into that is on the high school side, if we rewind the clock again, 20 years ago on the high school side, we really weren't in the showcase circuit yet. And, you know, go back to when I was covering, you know, high school guys in, in middle Georgia in the nine, late nineties. So they play American Legion ball, you know, they play for their high school team and they play American Legion ball and the competition was okay, but you know, it was kind of very up and down. Well, nowadays I, I'll take an example, you know, that from the not too decent re- recent past now, but so Byron Buxton played for, is a high school kid from Georgia and his senior year, I, I talked to twin scouts at the time and I asked him, I said, who is the best pitcher that you saw Byron Buxton? Y'all saw every game he played his high school senior year. What was the best pitcher that you saw? him face. And it was like, it was a guy who might be able to go to Juco. He was like 85 to 87 with some projection. That was the best pitcher he faced his high school senior year. The difference as opposed to say 15 years before that is, is everyone had a comfort level in Byron Buxton to some extent because they saw the athleticism, but more than that, they had seen him the previous summer and the summer before that facing top level pitching competition on the summer showcase circuit. When you talk about a high school guy now, when you talk about a college guy, especially we have like a lot of cases, these are players who everyone has five, six, seven year resumes on as opposed to it being, you know, and against top level competition. So like when this year happens that everything gets shut down early, it does make things more difficult for teams for scouting. But the thing I would say with it is, is that they've already been scouting these guys for so long in so many cases, and they have so much data on these guys in so many cases they have high-speed video of Edgertronics and all that they didn't have. There's so much they have now that you still have way more data now in a shortened season than anyone would have had 20 years ago because the data just didn't exist yet. I mean, it was tough. You know, the camcorders, if scouts were bringing camcorders, and most of them weren't, were a whole lot bigger back then. It wasn't something where you could just basically whip out your phone and, and take some good video of a player. Last one, JJ. I can't help myself. I have to ask okay. this question. Who in the White Sox farm system, and let's exclude Luis Robert. I'm not sure if you believe he's the best uh, prospect in the Sox system. I do. I do. Great. So, yeah, we're all in agreement there. Aside from Robert, who is it that you're most looking forward to seeing reach their potential? Okay, I'm going to give a weird answer on this one. I I will say it right now. And I could go in a lot of different directions. But I'm going to go Yerman because I'm a Yerman Mercedes fan because – not that I think that Yerman Mercedes is the number one, the number two, the number 10, the number 20 prospect. I mean, I almost thought about going James Beard because I'm very fascinated in James Beard. And I think that he's got a lot of interesting tools. But but the thing about Yerman Mercedes is, is that I really do believe that Yerman Mercedes can hit. And 
again, if we have 26 man, if, you know, in a different world that we're in now, I just hope not because he's going to be potentially an impact player necessarily, but I do root for the guy. My background at Baseball America, the first thing I covered at Baseball America was indie ball. And by the way, Yerman Mercedes played indie ball and he played Pecos League indie ball. And Pecos League indie ball is you are not going to get me out of this game until you rip the jersey off of my back, tear it apart, run over it with a car, and then burn it. Because if you do, I'm still going to reassemble it and I'm going to try to play some more. Yerman Mercedes wants to play baseball. I root for guys like that. And I do think his power is legit. He has some feel to hit. And not that he's going to be an everyday catcher, but I do think he can catch enough to have some value to a team as that third catcher on a club who can DH a little bit, play, you know, I'm rooting for a guy like that. Again, I know it's a really weird answer. I don't want people to take it that they that I think that Yerman Mercedes is a top prospect in the White Sox system, but man, I'm rooting for that guy. I don't think it's necessarily a weird answer just because you know, White Sox fans love Yerman Mercedes, obviously, you know, for, for some of the reasons you said, but also that, you know, he he doesn't look like your typical baseball player, so people no. fall in love with some of that stuff, and he's literally hit at every level he's been at. I don't know if you caught at all. He was in Major League Spring Training, obviously, and he hit, oh, yeah. know, he hit three or four homers, and he said, like, flat out in interviews, he's like, I'm the 26th man. Like, it's me. I'm, I'm winning it, like, and, and then everything halted, obviously. So, you know, I think we were talking about Evan Gaddis possibly as our pie in the sky comp for Yerman if he happened to make it to the major somehow. But, you know, it's something that Sox fans would look forward to just because he's a really fun player, even if he's not, you know, one of the top prospects in the system. Yeah, I, I mean, Evan Gaddis, I think that might, I hope, I, I again, I'm rooting for him. That would be great. You know, like, the, but that'd be, I think it's a little rich just because I think Evan is a, a better a better overall athlete, you know, like outfield is a much more realistic option. Also for get for Gattis. I think he's a better catcher, but again, Yerman can hit everywhere. I've ever seen him in person. It's like, you know, you, he's a guy who stands out as a guy who has some feel for the bat to go with the power. And you know, again, you, you, you got to root for guys like that to me. Awesome stuff. JJ Cooper joining us here on the future Sox podcast. We will wrap it up with that. I'm sure our listeners will, Take a liking to uh, your love for Yerman because we all share that same feeling. Uh, Cooper is JJ Cooper is the executive editor for Baseball America. He is all over the minor league scene as well as covering the Major League Baseball amateur draft that is upcoming on June 10th. At least we expect it to be. JJ, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a really fun conversation. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks, JJ. For J.J. Cooper and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash futuresocks to check out our full library, as well as search us on iTunes, subscribe to us, and rate us. Give us a review. It'll really help us out. Again, one last time for J.J. Cooper. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will talk to you all next time.